Well, friends, next Sunday is the City to Surf Half Marathon. I won't be there. Uh, I hate running. But uh, everyone who has been to the City to Surf say to me that the most difficult part of the course, and you might have run this race yourself, but the most difficult part of the course is a, a two-kilometre-long hill. Uh, it has come to be known as Heartbreak Hill because that's where the going gets tough. Uh, that's when the participants start struggling. That's when they start asking themselves, is it worth it? Is the pain going to be worth the glory that lies ahead? Now, uh, I wonder whether this is a little bit like living as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, often we use the cliche, uh, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon, don't we? And it's true, isn't it? Uh, being a, a Christian person, being a disciple of Jesus, is an endurance race. It's hard going, being a disciple. Uh, perhaps you're here this morning and it's tough for you at the moment, trying to follow Jesus. Perhaps you're facing opposition in your life for being a follower of Jesus. And you're asking yourself the question, is it worth it? Perhaps you look sideways and you see all your non-Christian friends and work colleagues and perhaps even some of the Christian people around you, you know, living a life of luxury and, and not doing very much in their, Christian, uh, in, in their life, uh, being lived for themselves. And you're asking the question, is it worth it? Uh, you know, the winter months I find always more challenging because of sickness and um, it's just generally harder going and being a disciple of Jesus and being faithful to him is tougher. And you might be asking, is it worth it? Uh, the great late Sydney evangelist John Chapman was famous for saying, uh, after 50 years of being a Christian, that the first 50 years are always the hardest. Uh, when he had been a Christian for 60 years, he changed his line by saying the first 60 years are always the hardest. It's tough being a Christian, and uh, I wonder whether we often ask ourselves, is it worth it? Now, uh, last week we began looking at the Gospel of Matthew from chapter 8, and uh, we saw the authority of Jesus, as uh, David reminded us this morning, the authority of Jesus revealed in his miraculous works of healing. However, I want you to see that today's passage is really about what it means to be a disciple or what it means to be somebody who follows Jesus. Uh, we use these words interchangeably, don't we? Uh, uh, you know, what it means to be a disciple and what it means to follow Jesus. And uh, you can see this theme of discipleship in the passage. Uh, and so, for example, if you uh, have a look in your Bibles, chapter 8, verse 19... Uh, in chapter 8, verse 19, you have a man who uh, comes to Jesus and he says to him, I will follow you. Uh, in verse 21, a little bit later, we meet another man who is described as a disciple. In verse 22, Jesus says, follow me. And in verse 23, we see the disciples of Jesus following him into the boat so that they can go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. 
And so uh, this part of Matthew's Gospel, uh, I think, is really a passage on the theme of discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. However, friends, uh, I wonder whether sometimes we can be a little bit fuzzy on what it actually means to be a disciple. I mean, how would you answer that question if I asked you, what does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? Uh, Most people, I think, would say something like, well, it means to follow Jesus. But if you ask, you know, what does it mean to follow Jesus, Uh, those same people might say, well, it means to be a disciple. Um, I think our thinking is sometimes a a little bit circular uh, when it comes to thinking about what it means. But I want to suggest that in the scriptures, being a disciple means to be a learner. To be a learner. Now, we see this idea all over the scriptures, but if you just flip back with me to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, uh, which is uh, right before Jesus launches into, you know, preaching his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, it says in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so the disciples are the ones who come to the feet of Jesus to hear him and to learn from his teaching. The disciple is the one who is hungry to learn about the things that Jesus says. The disciple is the one who who takes every opportunity to grow in their understanding of, of the words of Jesus. He or she is the one who doesn't excuse himself or herself from being a learner of God's word, which for us is the Bible. Now, uh, I know that being a disciple is, a, is about uh, more than simply studying the Bible. But I, I want you to see here, friends, that you cannot be a disciple of Jesus if you do not have an interest in learning what Jesus says. A disciple means to be a learner of Jesus. And yet, it's a bit more than just learning lifeless information about this man, isn't it? It's not like, for example, the way we learn about other people in history. You know, I can learn about Karl Marx, for example, by doing a course at university. But my knowing about Karl Marx doesn't actually commit me to being a Marxist, does it? Or I can uh, follow a football player. I can be a disciple in that sense. And yet, it doesn't actually commit me to being a football player. You see, being a disciple of Jesus is a bit different to this. Because it means learning from him, but learning in such a way that I am actually committed to being like him and growing more like him. It means change. It means being prepared to leave certain things behind so that I can be more like him. It means living radically like him, which necessarily involves a cost. Now, uh, if you have a look at our passage this, this morning, you can see the radical nature of being a disciple of Jesus as we see two potential disciples coming to Jesus. Uh, you know, it's a bit like these, these people are coming to Jesus with a, a suit and tie and they are being interviewed by the CEO, who is Jesus, 
about the position of disciple. What is Jesus seeking in a disciple? What qualifies you to be a disciple? If Jesus really is the CEO of this whole world, then you become a disciple on his terms, not on your own. Further, it's striking that Matthew puts this passage about discipleship immediately after the three miracles that we saw last week, if you remember, in verses 1 to 17. Uh, he actually does the same thing again, interestingly, in verses nine to, uh, chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. If you have a look at chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, uh, you can see there that uh, Jesus calls some disciples. It's a passage about discipleship. But notice that it comes after three miracles in chapter 8, verse 23, to chapter 9, verse 8. In other words, friends, uh, it's easy to follow Jesus because he has been doing miracles and he's becoming a little bit of a celebrity and you're impressed by his power. Uh, you know, whenever someone becomes famous, you usually get an entourage happening, don't you? Uh, you have the hangers-on who kind of want a piece of that power and that prestige and that success and that wealth. But here, it says, if Jesus is saying, if you really want to be my disciple, if you really want to follow me, I'm going to show you exactly what that looks like. And it's different to what you think. And so, what will it look like to follow Jesus? What will it look like to follow him? Well, the first thing I want you to see there is that following Jesus will be a radically costly activity. It will be a radically costly thing. You can see it in what Jesus says to the first interviewee or the first potential disciple. Uh, in verse 19, we're told that this man is a scribe who was a legal expert in Jewish law. It's obvious that this man has a certain respect for Jesus because he calls him teacher. It's a term of respect. And notice that he comes to Jesus full of enthusiasm. He says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, what is wrong with this kind of enthusiasm? Well, it's not that enthusiasm in and of itself is wrong, is it? I mean, it's a good thing to follow Jesus with enthusiasm and with joy. And yet the problem with this man is that he has spoken too quickly, too soon. In other words, he hasn't thought through carefully the cost of being a disciple. For Jesus says to him in verse 20, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. A few weeks ago, my brother-in-law had his pet chickens taken by a fox from his backyard. Uh, I don't know whether you've read the news, but it seems as, as, as though foxes have become a big problem here in Sydney. Um, they live in burrows. Um, they've made their home here. 
They have no enemies because we can't quite work out how to get rid of them without getting rid of you know, other important species of animals. And so they live in luxury. You know, they have comfortable homes and they have food in abundance and they can literally do whatever they want. But you see, Jesus is saying that his life is going to look different. His life is not going to be about comfort and security and ease. In fact, from this point on in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus is not going to have a permanent home and his mission is ultimately to suffer and die at the cross at Golgotha. It's striking here that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. For if you remember, the Son of Man is that great figure in Daniel chapter 7 who is given the, 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 the kingdom of heaven from God himself. And yet Jesus is saying that that glorious one is going to be the one who suffers and dies. And so Jesus says, if you want to follow me, are you willing to be like me? Are you willing to forsake your comfort and security and ease of life behind? If you want to be my disciple, you cannot be above me. Now, friends, for some disciples around the world, the sobering reality is that following Jesus will actually cost them their physical lives. Our brothers and sisters in Nigeria are being slaughtered because they identify themselves with Jesus. But for us who live in the affluent West, it's not as though Jesus has a completely different standard for us, is it? What parts of your life and my life would Jesus challenge because it is not costly? I mean, it could be time and energy in serving Jesus and his people. Or it could be money given to the work of the gospel and the work of proclaiming Jesus. Or it could be sacrificing lifestyle and the things you own. Because it's easy to live that double life, isn't it? Of actually living for wealth and possessions while doing the Christian thing on the side. But the question that Jesus raises is, are you and I merely giving Jesus the scraps in our lives? Or is following him going to involve a real cost to you and to me. So often I hear from Christians the language of, I will not do this or I will not do that to serve Jesus because I'm not comfortable with it. Have you ever used that line before? Since when has following Jesus been about being comfortable? This isn't what you might call salvation by works. It's evidence of genuine faith that follows Jesus all the way to the cross 
and all the way to eternal salvation. Uh, if you and I are not willing to live in this way, or we are holding back from following him, then Jesus would say to you and me this morning that you are not fit to be my disciple. Is that right? Is that what you're reading? Simply respecting Jesus at arm's length is not enough. Following him means being like him in suffering and in paying the cost for the good of others. Uh, J.C. Ryle, who was the Anglican Bishop of Liverpool in England in the 19th century, famously said this. He said, There is a common worldly kind of Christianity in this day, which many have, and they think they have enough. A cheap Christianity, which offends nobody and requires no sacrifice, which costs nothing and in the end is worth nothing. You can see that this kind of disciple was there in Jesus' day. We have no reason to believe that this disciple actually ended up following Jesus. They were there in the 19th century during J.C. Ryle's day. And they are swarming all throughout our churches in our current day. And some of them might even be in this room. But Jesus says... If this is the kind of Christianity you and I adopt, then it is an imaginary Christianity and you cannot be my disciple. Now the second thing about discipleship I want you to see in our passage is that it is an urgent priority. It is an urgent priority. And you can see this in Jesus' encounter with the second potential disciple. Uh, in verse 21, this man is called a, a disciple uh, in a fairly loose way, I think. I don't think he's a genuinely committed disciple, at, at least at this point in time. Uh, he's simply one of the crowds that are following Jesus. But notice that this disciple comes to Jesus with what seems like a fairly reasonable request, doesn't he? He says in verse 21, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now, it may be that this man's father has just died and he's simply asking Jesus for a, a little bit of time to go and arrange the funeral. If that's what he's asking, it will make Jesus' response all the more striking and offensive. But I've been persuaded this week that this is not actually what Jesus is, is uh, talking about here. For you see, in Jewish custom, uh, if somebody died you had to bury them within 24 hours. And so if this man's father had just died, it's highly unlikely that he would be following Jesus along on the streets, uh, listening to him. For he would have been busy uh, arranging for the funeral. Further, when somebody spoke of burying their father, it didn't actually mean uh, that the father was dead, but that he was old. And the son was simply waiting for his father to pass away. In other words, it was a Jewish idiom. Uh, the, the, the idea of burying one's father was a Jewish idiom for, you know, just waiting until the father dies 
and doing this, the, the duty of a son. And it could have been years before the father actually passed away. And so uh, perhaps what this, this, uh, this, this uh, potential disciple is doing is he's saying to Jesus, well, let me just wait until my father passes away. Uh, perhaps then I can get the inheritance before I really start to follow you, Jesus. You see, you see what I'm saying? But friends, notice that what Jesus says cuts right across society's expectations. For he says in verse 22, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Uh, I think the word dead is used in in two ways here. Uh, What he is saying is, let the spiritually dead bury the physically dead. In other words, uh, you leave those duties of looking after your father and uh, eventually burying him uh, to those who don't follow me. But if you want to follow me, you need to leave your father behind and come and do it now. Now, this is a real challenge for us, isn't it, friends? Especially for those of us who come from cultures where allegiance to family is almost sacred. A lot of Asian cultures are like that, I think. Now, I don't think Jesus is saying here that we are never to take care of family or parents. Uh, Later on in Matthew's Gospel, he rebukes the religious leaders for using their traditions uh, so that they can get away with not honouring their parents. And yet, make no mistake, friends, Jesus is saying that if your parents or your family make demands on you that would take you away from wholeheartedly following Jesus, then you need to say no to your family. I know parents who forbid their children from going to church. Um, I know parents who push their children to put all their energies into study and career and uh, not take Jesus too seriously in their lives. You know, it's okay to do a few Christian things, just don't become too radical in following Jesus. I know that many Christian children are almost in slavery to their parents in such a way that they never grow as disciples. But what Jesus is saying here is if you are not willing to have him as your ultimate allegiance, then you can't follow him. Further, did you notice that Jesus is not willing to wait He says to this man that you either follow me now or you don't follow me at all. The call to be a disciple from Jesus is an urgent priority that cannot be put off. It is an urgent call that requires a response now. Uh, Some of you may have heard this before, but uh, the story is told of three apprentice devils being trained by Satan. Uh, What are you going to try today? asks Satan, the leader. The first apprentice replies, I'm going to tell them that there is no God. Well, says Satan, you can try. A few fools will believe you. 
But the universe shouts the existence of God. There is evidence all around you, and you will not do very well. Indeed, even in the secular 21st century, you may find yourself witnessing the slow death of atheism. Any other ideas? The second apprentice tries this. I'm going to tell them that there is no judgment. That's a better idea, says Satan. You will persuade more people of that, uh, especially some of the clergy. But human beings have got a sense of accountability, that actions have consequences. They know what it is to feel guilty, even if their therapists tell them not to. And so I think you'll find that an uphill struggle. Anyone else have an idea? The third apprentice pipes up. I'm going to tell them that there is no hurry. Brilliant, says Satan. That is just what you want to say. You will have great success. Let them listen to the word of God and whisper in their ears, this is great stuff. One day you ought to do something about this. But tomorrow will do. Friends, uh, what are the things that take such a priority in your life and in my life that we want Jesus to wait before we take him seriously? Lord, let me first dot, dot, dot. How would you finish that for yourself? Lord, let me first get established in my career and be secure financially Then I'll be committed to following you, Jesus, perhaps. Lord, let me first raise my children until they get a bit older. Uh, Perhaps I'll put them through the HSC so that they can be a success in the world's eyes. And then I'll be committed to you, perhaps. Lord, let me travel the world and experience all that there is to experience for me. And then one day I'll live a life that is committed to you. And Jesus says, if you're not willing to follow me today, then you are not fit to be my my disciple. In fact, you may not even get a second chance. These are very hard words, aren't they, from Jesus? And you don't have to listen to me if that's not actually what Jesus says. But they are actually what Jesus says, aren't they? Friends, if being a disciple of Jesus is such an urgent priority that will cost me everything, then is it even worth following him? Is it worth following him? And Matthew's answer is a resounding yes, because he is the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, you can see this at the end of our passage this morning, which is uh, this very famous account of Jesus calming the storm. Uh, We're told in verse 23 that uh, out of the crowd, a few of Jesus' committed disciples follow him into a boat. Uh, We've already seen in verse 18 that Jesus wants to leave Capernaum, which is on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, and he wants to cross over to the eastern side. 
But uh, as they head off on what is uh, very likely to be a, a small boat, we're told in verse 24 that there was a great storm. Uh, the actual word there is the word earthquake. Uh, as the disciples experienced this storm, it must have been like there was an earthquake out uh, in the sea. However, Jesus is so tired that we are told there that he had fallen asleep in the boat. And uh, in verse 25, the terrified disciples wake Jesus up and they cry out to him saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, you can see just how terrifying this storm must have been because if you remember, Jesus' closest followers were professional fishermen for whom being out on a boat would have been their bread and butter. But here they are fearing for their lives. Now, uh, friends, I have absolutely no doubt that this incident actually happened in history. But I wonder whether Matthew puts this story here as a bit of a metaphor for what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. It will be rough, in other words. It will be dangerous. It will be scary. It will be risky. But what does Jesus say? Uh, In verse 26, he rebukes the disciples, saying, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Uh, Little faith counts for something. These are actually committed disciples of Jesus. But I don't think Jesus here is rebuking his disciples for the very normal fear of fearing things that are dangerous. But rather, I think Jesus is rebuking the disciples here for fearing to such an extent, being afraid to such an extent, that they forget who is with them in this boat. It is the kind of fear that refuses to see Jesus' presence in the midst of the storms of being a disciple. And who is it that is in this boat with the disciples? Well, to show them, Jesus in verse 26 gets up and we are told that he rebukes the winds and the sea. And such is his authority. Such is his power. Such is his glory over the creation that the seas calm down, the winds die down, and there is peace. Now, Just for the sake of a sermon illustration, um, I went out in my backyard one day during a storm and when no one was watching, I cried out, be still, to the wind and the rain. Uh, I tried a second time, uh, this, this time in a louder, more authoritative voice, but the rain fell even harder and I came in the house even wetter than when I went out. But you see the point here, don't you? Jesus is more than a man. In verse 27, the disciples are so astonished that at what they have just seen that they ask the question, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? You see, what we are meant to see here is that Jesus is God himself. 
In the Old Testament, including Psalm 107 that we read this morning, it is only God who can calm the seas. And so this is God with them. This is Emmanuel, God with us. He's God with us, even through the storms of being a disciple. And he has the authority over all things, including the things that you and I are afraid of. You know, it's scary being a disciple of Jesus, isn't it? We are fearful of the cost. We are fearful of perhaps missing out on things that we see other people have. We are fearful of being offensive to others if we really follow Jesus with our whole hearts. But brothers and sisters, do you see this morning who Jesus is? For knowing who Jesus is is ultimately the answer to following him rightly. He is the one with all authority in heaven and on earth. He is our Emmanuel, God with us. He is the one who is bigger than our fears and is able to rescue you uh, through your fears in this life as you follow him. And even on that day when he decides that your life on this earth is to be over, he is the one who, can, who is bigger than your fears and is able to save you from God's judgment and into eternal life. And it is this Jesus who calms the, the winds, the one who calms the sea, that is saying to you and me this morning, will you follow me? Will you follow me on my terms, not on your terms? And so are you and I following him in this way? Will we make changes to our life if we've realised this morning that we haven't? Are you and I following him? Let's pray.